so one of the things that has been mentioned about me and Matthew's podcast hosting kind of style is that Matthew will wisecrack jokes during the podcast and apparently I don't react to them at all. I'm not very funny, am I? I feel constantly rejected, Daniel, despite my best efforts to be truly hilarious. I think it's time that I I turned over a new leaf and now whenever you say anything that is even remotely considered uh, funny by anyone, I'm going to guffaw hysterically. You'll also just start laughing when I'm making serious points at this week. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's a good joke, Matthew. Hilarious stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to the Pin Factory, the Adam Smith Institute's podcast. My name is Matthew Ash. I'm the head of research at the ASI. In this week's episode, I'm joined by my co-host and our head of programs, Daniel Pryor, and Julian Morris, the senior fellow at Reason Foundation and a senior scholar at the International Center for Law and Economics. This week, we're going to be discussing the calls to delay reopening, global minimum taxes, and market environmentalism. There are growing demands for the government to delay the planned and much-anticipated June 21st reopening of the UK economy as the Indian variant has been driving an increase in case numbers. I I guess, you know, another COVID discussion topic, but it's it's one of the most important things on the news agenda at the moment in the UK is, are we going to reopen on the 21st? Is there going to be a kind of partial reopening or, or local reopenings instead. Uh, A few weeks ago on this podcast, we were discussing how there wasn't really a need to worry about the Indian variant very much because of high vaccination rates. Um, Looking back now, do you think, starting with you, Matthew, that that the higher case numbers we see are a reason for maybe more concern than we expressed a few weeks ago? A few weeks ago, our main concern was whether or not the Indian variant was breaking through the vaccine. And it appears that the answer to that is still largely no. If If you look at Public Health England's reports, of people who've had the Indian variant, you're looking at extremely minuscule numbers who have ended up in hospital um, and even smaller and more minuscule numbers of people who've died, uh, particularly people who've had two vaccinations. At the, time, at the same time, though, I am a little bit concerned about the, the increase in case numbers. I suppose this isn't completely unpredictable since the Indian variant does have a tendency to spread faster. We've also begun reopening in the last few weeks when it comes to indoor dining and other hospitality. So we've, we've seen a, a 30% increase in cases in the last week. Now, the problem is with an exponential growth curve, you know, things grow very quickly and then a proportion of those people end up in hospital, a proportion end up dying. Now, we should be able to break that cycle to some extent because so many people are vaccinated. I think there is potentially an argument to delay the reopening on the basis of well, not everyone's vaccinated yet. We don't want a mutant variant coming out of the Indian variant that's even worse, that does skip through the vaccines. There's a bit of a danger when it's still circulating around in society and therefore delay things. On the other hand, I feel, I feel like an economist here. On the other hand, on the other hand, um, <laughs> on the other hand, I don't see where this ends because there are always going to be more variants. There's always going to be more reasons to lock down. Um, and I'm, I'm not in a rush to say that we should be delaying reopening because I, I don't think we'll ever get a reopening potentially or, or not for a very long time. And how about yourself, Julian? We've seen some pretty nice weather in the UK over the past few days, and a lot of people have kind of started going out into the sun a little bit more, more people going to pubs. Um, there could be potentially a delayed effect on, on case numbers there as well. Do you think that there's good reason to be concerned that, and actually that the reopening date maybe could be pushed back a little bit, or are you uh, a little bit more optimistic than perhaps Matthew? Well, I won't comment on what the government might choose to do, but the evidence is that being outside, especially in the sunshine, is actually good for you. You get more vitamin D, you're less likely uh, to suffer ill consequences if you get diseases like COVID and including COVID. So going outside is a good, good thing. The question, I think, is how to reduce the likelihood of COVID being transmitted. Um, and now you've got a variant that's highly transmissible. You know, what, what, what are the precautions that ought to be taken? I think this really ought to be a decision that's taken by businesses rather than government. And businesses ought to be aware of the potential for all sorts of technologies that they could use to limit the likelihood of transmission and, the, and communicate to the uh, people who participate in their businesses, whether they're employees or customers, in the case of pubs and 
restaurants and so on. Um, and there's lots of lots of technologies available now to do that. And there's things like you know, protocols and standards that can be communicated with regard to what the businesses are doing. The, the, the technologies I'm talking about, of course, are, are apps that enable people to disclose their vaccine status, their COVID status, etc. Now, I wouldn't mandate uh, businesses use these technologies, but I would think that it would be in the interests of many businesses, especially those that want to reopen more fully with large numbers of people in confined spaces. I would, I would imagine it's in their favour to use a, a an app that enables people to, to disclose their COVID status and to limit entry by people who either don't know what their status is, they don't know their vaccination status or aren't able to disclose it, or, you know, or, or, you know, have COVID. So uh, but that, you know, that's just, that's my, my view. I mean, I think that if these technologies were implemented widely, you would reduce uh, transmission rates. But again, it's up to businesses. They, they're the ones who are going to either suffer the consequences, you know, of, of a subsequent closure. There is, of course, a, a bit of a free rider problem, right? So you could have a business that just says, oh, we're going to open up and be, COVID be damned. I, I, I think that there should be kind of social kind of consequences for a business that does that. And then there's a super spreading event, right? So that, that would be problematic, but it should be up to businesses. The government's got to get out of the way at some point. It can't go on forever. The, the question about kind of disclosure of vaccine status via apps and things like that, we've discussed a little bit on the, the broader vaccine passports debate on here before. And I think from, from what I can tell, you're probably not a, a fan of the kind of mandatory centralized kind of government vaccine passport and prefer that would be a, a bottom up initiative from from separate businesses. And, and hopefully the majority of them would would choose to adopt that and do correct me if I'm wrong in a second there. But there's still this kind of this objection from, I guess, libertarian leaning free market circles, even on the the kind of voluntary approach to, to this. And, you know, the idea of privacy when it comes to health information, and things like this being important and actually, you know, kind of we should be a bit wary about giving out this information, even if it is to, to separate apps, whether they're run by the NHS with the, the case of the NHS COVID app or indeed other apps. So what's your kind of your view on those libertarians and classical liberals who would maybe be a bit wary even of the voluntary approach that you're talking about? I should have been clear actually. I, I'm totally opposed to centralised apps that collect um, unnecessary information and disclose some more information than is, than is necessary. Um, there are already a plethora of privacy preserving apps that use uh, blockchain protocols to transfer only the necessary amounts of information that that are required for, for the communication purposes. They don't transfer any personally identifiable information unless you want to transfer that information. So they, they exist. You know, IBM's developed one. Actually, a colleague uh, of mine has developed one, and I try to get it adopted. But, you know, we can go over that another time. Uh, but there, so there's, there, there are lots of apps available um, that, that are privacy-preserving and so don't suffer those consequences. The NHS app, of course, isn't really truly privacy preserving. Um, it does collect additional information and does is at risk of, at least, uh, transferring more information than you would want uh, to people who you wouldn't want to have it. I, I think one of the potential complexities here is the fact that, particularly in the UK case, it's the NHS that has the information about us, and then it's the government has to decide whether or not we are going to have a verified ability to show that to somebody else. So on the first part of that transaction, which is should the government allow us to access our own medical records, I can't see a strong libertarian argument against me being able to verify my medical records. Then should I be able to show that to somebody else in a secure way? Now, I don't know the details of, of the anonymity when it comes to the NHS app at the moment. I actually don't think you can scan that QR code at a private business yet and be ticked off as having been vaccinated at the moment. It just gives you kind of a PDF that's largely for international travel and there's a QR code along alongside. I think though, in an interesting side case, the government does seem to be less sympathetic to doing a kind of compulsory vaccine passport scheme domestically at the moment. I think Michael Gove said that a few days ago. And in some ways that's yeah. bouncing off what's happened in Israel, which is Israel has had a, a COVID vaccination certification scheme for a number of months and it was technically compulsory for likes of restaurants and theatres, but in practice nobody really used it. Um, and it was more or less redundant because right. case numbers were so low in Israel and because they've maintained strong borders, which is another 
topic on on the cards this week, particularly as as the UK is just taking Portugal off the green list and put it onto amber. The fact that the UK wasn't able to secure its borders in the same way as Israel means that there are more cases domestically, which means there might be a greater case for businesses choosing to make the decision to require that. I I don't think unless the government mandated it, it's going to happen in practice, because I think businesses don't want to be seen to be discriminating against their customers. So at the same time, I think that's probably all right as a conclusion. I wouldn't want the government to ban it, though, like they have in Florida under a Republican governor. I don't think it needs to be banned. I think it should be ultimately a decision between the, <laughs> the consumers of the service and the providers of the service. Yeah. So you know, not wanting to get into the technical details of the NHS app, assuming that we there is available a privacy-preserving mechanism for people to be able to transfer data that's held by the NHS, right? So, I mean it's perfectly feasible to set up a a mechanism by which individuals will be able to access their NHS records and then disclose in a privacy preserving way those records to us. So perfectly possible to do that. I think that the important question is, what is the next step, right? So do you have a full opening on June the 21st? If there isn't a full opening on June the 21st, then maybe I'll walk back one step, my observation about pure voluntary system. Well, if businesses are given the option that you can either remain largely closed, or you could open up under the conditions that you require disclosure. I mean, that you know, that's that's what's on the table, then businesses at least have that choice. I'd be sympathetic for, for a limited number of venues in particular, particularly clubs, large theatres, big indoor yep. spaces, large events for people. Not when you go down to the pub or the restaurant, but if you want to do a large-scale event, having some kind of COVID vaccine scheme or, or you have to do a lateral flow test on the way in alternatively to confirm your COVID status right. is not an unreasonable requirement at the same time as allowing those places to reopen. Yeah. And then, as you know, you talked also about you know, border closures. I mean, you know, we've seen recently a spike in cases in Taiwan because of apparently relatively, at the moment, lax uh, border controls. So I think there needs to be consideration given to how you address the problem of, of more people coming into the, the island, the country, who may have COVID. And, you know, obviously, you know, BA and many other airlines are adopting vaccine passport schemes that probably make sense. So I know you mentioned earlier on, Julian, you didn't want to speculate too much on, on what the government might actually end up doing. But from what I've been reading so far in the news, it does seem like there was, despite a, a kind of a groundswell of support for delaying reopening or, or maybe phasing it in in a way that hadn't been previously proposed. It, it does seem like we're still on track for, for a fairly comprehensive reopening on June the 21st. But I think when we were talking about this just before the podcast, Matthew, you may be a bit more sceptical, a bit more pessimistic than me and thinking it would be a little bit more scaled down. Is that correct? Do you, do you think that's the case? I mean, it's purely speculating, but I, I don't think it's going to be the, the great day of freedom that Boris might have been imagining a few months ago. Well, that means that there are substantial changes and certain venues open, but there's still, for example, mask requirements or social distancing requirements for a little bit longer. I, I think that wouldn't surprise me. I mean, there is that ongoing question, do, do those local lockdowns ever actually prove effective? I think that the, the data from late last year is a bit mixed. It's not completely clear to me either way on that particular front as an alternative approach that of course what happened last time is you had local lockdowns not just expanded into another national lockdown so I don't want to see that happen either at the same time so I think it'll be a matter of just keeping a very close eye over the next few weeks when it comes to where the hospitalization numbers are and where the death numbers are is that'll tell us whether or not really the COVID is just spreading amongst young people it's not a particularly big threat they'll be vaccinated soon enough we'll, we'll be done with this or whether or not we are seeing a lot more breakthrough and a lot more vulnerability in society than we realise. And do you have any thoughts on that kind of the idea of local lockdowns, Julian? Because that has been coming up in discussion again, obviously the Indian variant very concentrated in certain areas of the UK and it kind of seems at least quite politically attractive if we were to to continue with a large-scale reopening in most places and only um, continue some restrictions in, in the places where the case numbers for the variant are quite high. Do you see the evidence for those that we, we've had so far as, as being compelling or, or actually is there something that, that's just not going to really work and we need so, to do everything on the national level? So around the world where COVID was most effectively contained, the evidence is that by doing a track and trace and quarantining those people who are identified as having COVID, 
in in the localities in which they they are identified, you can really contain the problem. But you have to do that very aggressively. In other words, you have to have a mechanism for identifying that all the people who have COVID, and you need to have a mechanism for ensuring that people who have COVID are isolating. And I think on both those things, the UK has not performed particularly well. And simply imposing lockdowns um, is is at a local level isn't really going to be that effective. I mean, that, that's that's what we know from the international experience. Local lockdowns without the trap trace and proper isolation don't don't really work properly. I'm sure we can probably do a whole other podcast with Matt Lesh uh, speaking by himself on track and trace and the various failures there <laughs> as one of the favourite topics. But um, yeah. I think it's probably time to move on to our next topic for this podcast, which is global minimum tax rates and the changing tax consensus. Happy Tax Freedom Day. On Monday, May 31, we celebrated the day that the Brits stopped paying taxes and began working for ourselves. This is the latest the days come since 1995, but comes as more taxes are set to increase under the Conservatives, and there's also proposals internationally for a minimum global tax rate. Starting in the UK context, I I suppose it's worth thinking about what's been happening with with Tax Freedom Day, and why is it becoming a bit later and later, Daniel? One of the things that frustrates me here is that you'd expect, obviously, the overall tax take to increase over time, holding everything else equal. You've got population increase, um, you've got inflation, these sort of factors. But, of course, Tax Freedom Day is about the proportion uh, of the overall income, and that has been going up pretty much continuously for for decades now, with a few exceptions. And, you know, this is just part of a kind of a very very difficult to reverse trend in increasing government spending and, and demand for government action. There was a, a great, a few years ago, there was a great blog from, um, I think it was maybe Will Wilkinson or Sam Hammond from this Cannon Center talking about how, unfortunately, despite our, our best efforts and our fantastic podcasts and, and whatnot, libertarians haven't been particularly successful in curbing the overall increase in the, the size of the state as a proportion of the total economy. And you know, this is just part of a, a widespread ideological thinking that actually the, the state is is necessary and more necessary over time to, to solve various societal problems. Uh, and the best way of doing that is through not just raising specific taxes, but just making sure the state as a whole has a larger role in the economy. And this is something it's not just in the UK, of course, there's, um, there's similar trends across Europe and uh, and the US again, the you know certain years might be exceptions, mm. but definitely the, the overall historical trend has been an increase. It's an interesting case in the UK, particularly look over the last twenty five years, which is when we have the, the most reliable data on this topic. Uh, we saw it go up in the Conservatives in the, the early nineteen nineties, went up under Labor in the two thousands, uh, went slightly down during the GFC during a recession because it was less tax take. Uh, during the coalition years, it was interestingly pretty stable. Uh, we didn't see the coalition increase the tax burden, but nor did they decrease it. But since 2015, we've seen a quite substantial trend line increase under a conservative government uh, beyond what it was under Labor uh, in, in the 2000s. Blair and Brown taxed the British people less than Cameron uh, in his later years, May and Johnson, which I think is quite an extraordinary conclusion to reach. What, what's your view on this when it comes to the, the growing size of government, Julian, the growing need to take on taxes. We haven't even discussed here the fact that this doesn't even take account of spending and we've got huge levels of borrowing, which are just delayed taxation as well. Well, I mean, the, the tax take is somewhat reflective of the uh, spending, right? So uh, government has many, many programs that it needs to fund. So that explains why it, it, it keeps on increasing the total tax take in part by leaving kind of the the floor level of taxation constant and so as as incomes rise the total tax take rise just automatically and and partly by in in some cases increasing uh, taxes of various kinds but especially i mean especially worrying is the increase in tax on on personal income but also now you see uh, the chancellor talking about increasing taxes on corporations so but I do think that that's largely a reflection of uh, a desire to provide funding 
for this very very high level of government services which you've which you've discussed and while i think it's plausible that some level of government services are desirable really a lot of the things that are being supplied by government could be provided more cost effectively uh, and in fact more innovatively and generally better by the private sector there are many things that are really private goods that are currently being provided by the government and there are many things that could be considered club goods that that are provided by the government that could be better provided by the private sector so this idea that the government needs to grow that it needs to have uh, this expansive uh, involvement in the economy i think is very dangerous and you're seeing increasingly kind of that play that move not only from the the supply of things like you know healthcare no no clear evidence that that needs to be supplied by government but uh, all the way through to you know industrial policy governments providing direct subsidies uh, tax expenditures and so on uh, to to companies on the basis that this is going to lead to greater levels of uh, of, of economic growth which is historically I and mean, the evidence that is available completely bogus just not true and contrary to in fact to the evidence which suggests that the the best thing the government can do with regard to industry is to get out of the way uh, provide a basic legal framework mm. that works but apart from that just get out of the way and and then there's that kind of classic question of okay we can think about how the tax burdens increasing but also there's surprisingly little discussion these days about how to improve the quality of of taxes and, and the way to ensure that even if you need to raise more revenue how can you do that with the least possible economic damage yeah so i think that this is something that is sometimes lost on free marketeers. Now, it's certainly useful and I think important to focus on the overall proportion of the tax take um, as a size of the economy. But that said, I think I'd much rather be working for the tax man up to May the 31st, paying purely, uh, say, VAT and carbon tax, which I'm sure we'll get onto later, uh, than I would paying corporation tax out of uh, out of my wage bill and reduced investment in the overall economy. So it, it really is as much, I would say, if not more, a question about the the character and the type of taxes that are used the most by the government in revenue raising than it is compared to the the overall tax take, which again is obviously important. But we need to we need to be focused on kind of the the political realities here. Well, a lot of the time, governments aren't going to respond quite as well to an argument. Well, we need to reduce the overall tax burden, but they might be more responsive to arguments about, well, we need to shift our, our taxation burden from X very damaging tax to Y less economically damaging tax. And, and on the, the topic of, of damaging and, and less damaging taxes, there's now this proposal floating around that you've been looking into quite closely, Julian, from the, the Biden administration through the OECD to set a, a global minimum corporate tax. Um, indeed. And I mean, this is really all about the US trying to get more in the way of taxes from US corporations that have overseas entities. And uh, historically, the US has allowed those entities to defer their taxes. Under the, uh, under the Trump administration, they, they introduced a, a, a slight change to that called GILTI, G-I-L-T-I, um, which introduced the concept of uh, corporations paying a minimum level of tax on their global profits. So basically what you do is you you calculate the global profits of of the corporation uh, outside of the US and and then calculate the total amount of tax that those entities outside the US are paying. And if that total amount is more than the minimum, which is the percent in the in in the US right now, then you don't pay any additional tax. If it's less than that, then you pay an amount that to- tops up the amount in the US to the to the minimum. What the Biden administration is proposing is to change those rules. First of all, to increase the minimum for US corporations. He wants to increase the minimum to twenty one percent in the US. And at the same time, he wants to change the way that it's calculated. So instead of calculating it on the basis of the global uh, profits of the of the entities and the global payments of tax, he wants to do it on a jurisdiction by jurisdiction basis. So if in each, if any jurisdiction, a company is paying less than twenty one percent 
in taxes, then uh, that company would be forced to pay the difference between what they're paying and 21% to the US government. So that's what the US government wants to do. It's what Biden wants to do in his proposal. Um, he's now, but in that proposal also, he's saying, well, to make that work, he needs to change the global tax rules. Because if the US makes this change, but many other countries don't, then you could see lots of, com lots of companies changing their domicile outside of the US, so they're not subject to this US rule. So he wants to have a global minimum tax. He's now, he initially said he wanted a 21%, uh, and he wants to have it on this jurisdiction by jurisdiction basis. This would be extremely harmful. Now he's negotiated down, he said, well, he'll, he'll accept a 15% minimum. Still extremely harmful, especially on this jurisdiction by jurisdiction basis, because it means that companies can't offset amounts paid in high tax jurisdictions without amounts paid in low tax jurisdictions. And you end up overtaxing, if you think about it in a, in a sort of principled sense. Uh, if your objective is to have you know, a, a global minimum tax of X, if you force the com companies to pay that in each jurisdiction which they opposite, operate, then, then you're going to raise more than X because some jurisdictions will inevitably have taxes higher than X, at least in the short term. In the medium to long term, you could see a, 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 a sort of funneling of tax rate where they end up converging on the minimum. So the minimum becomes the maximum uh, as well. So there's all sorts of peculiar things that can happen. Uh, I, I, I suspect you'll get sort of companies moving there and there. Anyway, the bottom line is that a global minimum tax really is not terribly desirable. And if you're going to do a global minimum tax, doing it on, the, on, on a jurisdiction by jurisdiction basis is an extremely bad idea. Well, the, the funneling effect or potential of that that you mentioned kind of uh, makes me slightly more pro this from the UK's perspective, because uh -huh. at least we'd, uh, we'd get some sort of reduction in, um, in the current planned increases that the Chancellor is, is planning. But it, yeah, in, in all seriousness, I think that the kind of idea, it, it's not just the fact that corporation tax itself is a particularly bad way of raising revenue. We, we, you know, kind of pretty well known in libertarian circles that Obviously, it hurts investment, it hurts workers, a significant proportion of the tax falls on workers' wages themselves yep. and, and, you know, the, the various other objections that we have here. And this also undermines the kind of, I, I think one of our, our senior fellows, Richard Tether, in a recent ASI webinar put it, the canary in the coal mine of low tax jurisdictions um, being able to kind of act as a signal that, well, for governments that up their corporation tax and cause uh, companies to offshore, maybe they're doing something wrong there. Maybe they should think <laughs> twice about their their overall approach to to taxing and regulating businesses in that case. But it's also the kind of, I guess, the more wider moral case. And you won't hear me argue this often as uh, the diehard utilitarian. Uh, both Matthew and our listeners know that I am. But there is a, a very compelling case that actually this is a real invasion of sovereignty. Right? We in the UK have recently voted to leave the European Union and, you know, take back control of X, Y, and Z. And this is mm. ceding control on a massive, important issue of, of how the government raises its revenue to to a completely different power. Um, and the kind of, you know, res instinctive response to this, I think, for a lot of people will be, well, this is, this is an international cartel. Uh, and if anything, it's an attempt at, at bullying from um, from. Joe Biden. Now, obviously, there are those who despise the idea of, of companies making goods and services and that people value and enjoy and actually would prefer to, to tax them out of existence entirely. But I think that a significant proportion of people are, are going to be quite anti this, even if they might traditionally be, be happier with domestically higher corporate tax rates. There's a certain irony in the fact that the United States of all countries, the nation that was formed out of a tax re revolt because somebody on the other side of an ocean <laughs> wanted to decide what their tax rate should be and what they should pay, and now proposing that everybody else, a truly imperialist move, uh, set tax rates at the appropriate American set level. And we should, of course, remember that, that practically every revolution has a, a pretty strong tax story about it, you know, about the estate's general, the ability of the king in, in France to raise taxes, which ultimately was rejected by the, the people and led to the revolt against the king. This isn't something that's minor or a secondary part of government. The ability of government to raise taxes, to squeeze money out of the people, must be accountable to those people uh, who the, the money is coming from. And when they remove that basic accountability, they cede the sovereignty to set 
taxes in your own country, I, I think we're setting a truly monstrous precedent of, of no accountability. It's not even, you can even say, well, the EU, at least there's some kind of democratic mechanisms in the EU. This is through an agreement at the OECD, which is not a, a it's a great organisation in many respects, but it's not a democratic organisation. It, it's it's basically a, what's becoming a cartel of major countries against low tax jurisdictions. But also, and, and I'm interested for your thoughts on this, Julian, the, the basic principles of some Good, what can be quite good tax design, depending on how they choose to do this. Because, of course, Chancellor Rishi Sunak's major policy proposals, like the super deduction, free ports, are all dependent on the idea of providing certain tax deductions from people's corporate taxes. Now, if that's not recognised internationally, that, that policy could be completely destroyed by this policy because they'd be forced to tax the country companies yeah. elsewhere for any tax deductions that they get in the UK. I mean, of course, who knows exactly what the negotiations on this would, would come out with. Um, I mean, you have right now, there's a there's this uh, discussion happening at the G7, um, and G7 countries have their particular interests. Then it's going to move to the G20. The G20 have their particular interests. Uh, but it's quite possible that you would, by October at the G20 meeting in Italy, have a have a, a the, the basis for an agreement. An agreement then made among 20 jurisdictions, which will affect every jurisdiction in the world. So even if you know you could say that Rishi Sunak is representing the people of the UK at the G7 and the G20, and so there's some degree of, of sovereign representation there, I, I think you're right that, to question that, given that he's not taking this to the people and asking them. But even if that were the case, then it's being imposed on all the other countries of the world, essentially, from, from the G20. So very problematic. Uh, yes, you're right that the there is a likelihood that especially the, the super deduction and probably even just uh, a straightforward 100% deduction would not be given full credit within this system. So there's going to be in the blueprint that the OECD has come out with, there's a formulaic carve out uh, for certain types of activity it's very unlikely that 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 would encompass a super deduction so yes this would be harmful to you know i think a very important aspect of uh, rishi sunak's uh, uh, tax proposal and it almost certainly or even more so is unlikely to allow for the kinds of tax exemptions that would be provided in these free ports so i think yeah, I mean, but that just highlights the the, the fundamental problem with uh, with the way that this is being designed. That it's 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 going to it's it's sort of procrustean. It tries to force everyone's every country's tax system into this into this particular little bu- box. But we know you've said that corporation tax. So corporation tax, yes, it's really a tax on workers, but it's also being a tax on capital. It it harms investment. It reduces economic growth. It could even see this long term or even in the medium term resulting in lower levels of, of tax take because it because it's such a neg- has such a negative effect on economic growth. So it's very, you know, it's just, you know post-COVID crisis thinking, I think, is messing with people's minds. It's desperate, it's, it's, this desperate need to offset the enormous amounts that have been uh, spent. I mean, the US is over 100% of its GDP now in debt. Uh, the UK is more or less 100%. I mean, that, these are very, very high levels of debt that are going to have to be paid off somehow. But I think just saying, oh, well, corporation tax is somehow, so let's do it, um, is, is ill-conceived. And there are so many better ways of, of solving the conundrum of, of how to balance budgets going forward. I think it's time to move on to a bit more of an optimistic worldview, which is a, a chat about market environmentalism. So optimism, capitalism is, of course, destroying the planet. Uh, Species are dying out, resources are running out, and our future is doomed. But is any of this actually even remotely true? Uh, Market environmentalism contests a lot of these dire views about the environment and its relationship with free markets and also seeks to provide practical solutions. And this isn't something we've talked about too much on the podcast before. So I think maybe, Julian, if you wouldn't mind just kind of giving an overview of what exactly is free market environmentalism, what aspects of this approach that make it unique? So free market environmentalism is really an attempt to capture back the moral high ground and the debate over how to protect the environment from a large swathe of, uh, of people 
who seem to be kind of misanthropic is I think a fairly <laughs> reasonable term and, and not only misanthropic but also beloved of incredibly aggressive government intervention if you look at the history of environmental activism going back to the 19th century there were many groups that actually saw practical ways to improve the environment by investing in conservation by identifying local way local measures that could reduce emissions at a in a cost effective way so market environmentalism really sort of is trying to go back to that these sort of more voluntary approaches and where government has to be involved approaches that emphasize market mechanisms to allocate resources so a good example would be fisheries hot topic in in some sense in the uk with the uh, d- debate over how much of the uk's fish might or might not be um, allocated to the eu going forwards but if we go back to the 1970s there was the the great uh, cod wars uh, between iceland and the uk and um, although the uk lost those wars it was a good thing that they did because iceland implemented a system of ownership rights in fish so that so that in iceland starting with mackerel then gradually expanded to pretty much all of the the major catch fisheries um including cod uh iceland established a, a system of tradable permits so each boat owner had um a a, a permit that allowed them to a share of the total catch. Now this is important. So instead of having a specific amount each year, they had a share of the total catch. That incentivized the boat owners to ensure that the value of that share rises over time. And then you had uh, uh, scientific bodies looking at what the total allowable catch should be. And the fishermen were involved in those decisions. And over time, uh, that the, that total allowable catch um, has, was was set at a level that enabled sustainable fishing in Iceland. So that uh, instead of constantly sort of going after an expansion of the total allowable catch, they actually capped it at a reasonable level. And then the boat owners were able to sell shares between them. So you had more, you had an increase in efficiency of the system uh, as well as um, a, an increase in the availability of fish. And as as Matthew probably knows, uh, being being from that part of the world, uh, they did the same in in New Zealand in the nineteen eighties. They, they in fact they went more in the way of markets in New Zealand because they they created um, a they basically sort of corporatized the, the the entire total allowable cap system. And there, as in Iceland, you've seen a, a a an improvement in the sustainability of the of the fish stocks and an increase in the profitability of fisheries. So the fish, the fishermen have benefited, and the fish stocks. So that's I think a great example of really market environmentalism, where you're where you're essentially creating a kind of property right, enabling that property right to be bought and sold, um, and creating the a system of incentives that drives better, more efficient management of uh, and and more sustainable management of a of a resource. I I really see market environmentalism having three key elements. The first is optimism, the second is explain, and the third is fix. So in terms of the first, the optimism, that's really about a narrative around kind of fixing some some fundamental myth-truths, one might even say lies, that are are spread by the popular environmental movement uh, and and trying to fix up the perspectives about the state of the environment and our abilities to tackle environmental problems. So that's explaining things like we're using less resources, we're growing more food, uh, there's 99% fewer people dying in natural disasters, than there was about 100 years ago. And we're cleaning up rivers like the Thames that used to be disgusting and dirty and unclean. And so that's the first point, fixing fixing the narrative, giving an optimistic view. The second point is to try to explain the mechanisms behind that, how markets drive towards efficiency and using less resources. The markets don't actually encourage misuse of resources. In fact, it's, it's typically more socialistic systems that have no incentive to maximize output and minimize input. And the classic example here is the, the whale catchments in Russia. Even after Russia agreed in, in the um, second half of the 20th century to stop catching whales, they actually continued doing it because they had quotas. They didn't even need the whales particularly, and most of it went to waste. But they kept catching these whales just because the system said uh, input's good. We don't really consider about efficient use of resources. And then you also saw when the when the Iron Curtain lifted that socialist countries were far heavily 
emitting to a much greater extent than, than Western countries that had far more efficient factories and far more efficient production. It's kind of making that point that markets already are naturally good for the environment. That you you don't there's nothing inherently contradictory between free markets and environmental outcomes. Now the third part is is what I call the fix, or, or really sometimes a needing to intervene in the market to ensure that it functions more effectively. Now that's using the power of markets, unleashing the power of markets, and individuals' decentralized activity in order to tackle environmental issues. And that's when, uh, as Julian said, we talk about examples like the New Zealand fisheries. We're talking things about like a border-adjusted carbon tax, about kind of local activity in the Ostrom style of, of organization that can we can use mechanisms that are market-like but might require some state role at least to, to get the ball rolling in, in order to tackle environmental issues. So there's that common metaphor used to explain uh, kind of left-wing environmentalism of, of watermelons being green on the outside and red on the inside and I feel like we need a kind of liberal uh, free market honeydew melons of yellow on the inside but actually green on the inside as well. Um, I'm not sure if that's going to catch on though so we'll, we'll, I'll leave, the, leave that <laughs> comment there. Uh, you mentioned just a the conclusion of your remarks, Matthew, about um, one of one of probably the, the most hotly discussed aspects of the market environmentalist agenda, and that is carbon taxes. And in the last section of the podcast, we discussed some of the issues with our new high tax reality, I should say the first section of the podcast. But when it comes to things like carbon taxes, and, and Julian, I'll start with you because I, I don't actually know your, your views on these. Um, wh- why is it that some free marketeers have sympathy with introducing what is in effect, you know, yet another tax. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think those people who support carbon taxes come in different varieties. But I mean, I, I think one popular argument is that a, a carbon tax would be preferable to all of the current regulations and, and uh, you know, carbon price floors and so on that we, that we have. I actually agree with that. If you could get rid of all of the utterly ridiculous in many cases uh, regulational mandates things like you know say oh we're gonna have no 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 natural gas boilers sold in the uk after whatever it is 2025 or something crazy uh, we're not going to have any internal combustion engine vehicles after 2030 these sort of ridiculous hard mandates are clearly going to be extremely costly to implement and the benefits are relative to alternative way pathways to achieve whatever reduction in carbon you want are going to be much lower. So so a, a carbon tax is preferable to those because it is it would be presumably applied at a uniform level. It would um, incentivize uh, reductions in carbon emissions if it's in, implemented right and incentivize innovations in lower carbon emitting technology so we do all those things and it would do that in a way that's far more cost effective and far less harmful than these sorts of mandates another argument that's used in favor of carbon taxes is that they would quite plausibly be less harmful to the economy if you even if you left all the other regulations based less harmful to the economy uh, to use a to imply impose a, a carbon tax than for example corporation taxes so if you could just scrap corporation tax and replace what you would otherwise be levying in the form of corporation tax with a with a carbon tax you might well be better off again i think the, the question is can you do that right so in both cases can you would you actually get rid of the regulations uh, and replace them with the carbon when you introduce a carbon tax would you make the 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 introduction of a carbon tax revenue neutral and do it by removing corporate tax or, or income personal income tax that would be probably a more popular way of doing uh, doing the, the the revenue neutral trade-off and I'm sort of sceptical that that's the case. I'm, I worry. I mean, and if you look at the examples of where that's been tried, so British Columbia, for example, introduced a, a carbon tax a few years ago, and initially it was going to be revenue neutral, and initially it sort of was revenue neutral, but over time they changed the definition of revenue neutral, so it's not really revenue neutral anymore. So, you know, even in a you know decentralized system like Canada, where you had a provincial government introduce the, a, a carbon tax, they, they weren't able to keep it contained and it ended up becoming a sort of just another rev- mechanism for revenue raising. So sort of sceptical, but, you know, let's have the debate. And, and ho- hopefully actually as part of that debate, you would have a broader debate over well, what are the right policies to address climate change? And I think that a lot of it really ought to be focused on removing barriers to innovation, removing barriers to trade in low carbon goods, that sort of thing. Those, because I think that can do a, a, a lot of good removing barriers to fracking. I mean, 
it, one of the reasons why the UK has reduced its, its production of carbon per unit of, of, of output has has been the shift to gas and the shift to gas has been enabled recently in the us by fracking well why doesn't the, the uk follow that and allow a shift to gas instead of saying they're going to ban gas boilers it's mental i, I think you pretty much hit the nail on the head for what my biggest worry about carbon taxes is and the, the same sort of objection has, has come up when we at the asi have been discussing universal basic income or, or negative income tax and it's well you know sure the ideal system you'd replace this swathe of of other um, welfare payments and benefits with a, a UBI and wouldn't that be fantastic and then of course you're hit with the political reality of well, unfortunately politicians like to add things on to already existing systems rather than simplify rationalize uh, improve the uh, efficiency in in various areas and it's definitely a concern for, for carbon tax that I think is legitimate there, there's some objections that I find a little less compelling so often there's kind of the the regressivity of is highlighted I think that you know that you talked about British Columbia. They they have got a rebate in in place in order to try and combat some of that regressive nature of the carbon tax. I think most places that would have one on consideration would would realise this fairly quickly and and have done in that case and and realise that as as long as the kind of overall tax and and welfare payment system is not regressive, then then you're okay, even if a particular tax within that system happens to be regressive but you mentioned um mentioned clean kind of free trade there and, and reducing some of the the barriers to trade there's obviously the the border adjusted element of, of carbon tax that some would potentially see as a barrier to trade that you're you're introducing i certainly yep. don't see it that way but there are some quite interesting kind of market environmentalist proposals around clean free trade and there have been some agreements about that so i i know matthew you've also yep. been been looking at this in in some detail what is the kind of clean free trade agenda how does that work in practice so, so clean free trade is effectively trying to use the benefits that we know accue from free trade in terms of the ability to produce goods with greater specialty and more efficiently and really applying that for environmental goals more specifically so it's it's effectively a, a, a multifaceted thing the first element is the sense in which uh, and this already kind of happens naturally the reason why free trade is already quite clean is because if you can produce something with less carbon emissions somewhere else, transport tends to actually be a relative, often relatively minor part of the, the carbon contribution of trade. Uh, the classic example here is New Zealand lamb. Now you would think when you eat New Zealand lamb in the UK because of all those quote unquote carbon miles that it would be terrible for the environment. Actually not true because New Zealand lamb is produced so efficiently that actually even after it is transported across the world, uses fewer carbon emissions than Welsh lamb because Welsh lamb is just not a particularly inefficient, uh, so it's a particularly inefficient production process. So the first element here is, is just allowing people to trade and, and, uh, and accruing the benefits that come from free trade. And the second element here, and this is where you can have more active policy intervention, which is trying to remove the current barriers that exist to environmental trade. So Julie might have some more ideas on this front. The classic here is there's a list of goods that are related to environmental production, solar panels, for example, or, or production and in inputs to solar panels. And you zero rate, you, you take tariffs on any good that has some environmental benefit down to zero so that you can get the benefit from that. And then in addition to that, you can think about how you make certain taxes or certain environmental spending and and investment lower tax between jurisdictions and a bunch of policymakers around that. A good example on that front is something called ACTS, which is uh, an, a deal that's being signed by a small number of countries, including the likes of New Zealand, that tries to pursue a, a clean free trade agenda. So, you know, I'm fully on board with removing trade barriers. And I think that that, that would, in general, lead to cleaner trade and cleaner economic development in general. I'm not opposed to the idea of coming up with a list of goods that uh, are clean. I, I worry about its contents, though. I think it's it. One problem is we don't know uh, what kind of technologies in the future might interact to lead to uh, reductions in emissions. I often give the example of the internet. So who was to know when you know Dow Corning was developing uh, fiber optic cable? When when the when DARPA was developing TCP/IP, who was to know that these technologies would have combined to enable an unbelievably rapid 
transfer of information, storage of information, and retrieval of information, and, and, and the kinds of interactions that have happened as a result um, through the internet. Who was to know? And, and who would have known more that they, these technologies ultimately are enable the transfer of things in much more environmentally friendly ways. So, you know, you can download movies, you can download music, you can you can transfer files. And all of those things are done at very, very low environmental costs compared to the physical movement of paper, of CDs, of, 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 of LPs, of, if you can remember that back that far, so, uh, 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 yeah, et cetera. So, so you're, you're enabling a much greener economy, but it's not because someone went out and invented a green tech. Right. So, so the danger, I think, is if you come up with, with, with this list of things that are greener and you bias towards that green list and you bias inherently against some other set of technologies, one or more of which might be part of a future much greener world. So I'd, I'd be a little bit cautious about a, a significant bias. I mean, if it's just the removal of tariffs, all good. And I think just generally expand that list so that it eventually covers more or less everything that isn't obviously contributing to a worse environment. I mean, that, maybe that's the better way of doing it. You have a, a list of goods that really, well, you probably want to have less of that, like, you know, coal. Who knows? I mean, or even that, you know, with carbon capture and storage, maybe even coal's fine. So, you know, it's, I mean, it's just very difficult to know what the technologies are that you're going to be allowing or, or, or discouraging. Well, I think on that note, we can leave ourselves and our listeners to dream about technologies not yet invented that will solve various environmental challenges. Um, but on that note, I just want to thank my co-host, Matthew Lesh, and our guest, Julian Morris. Thank you so much for joining us on the Adam Smith Institute's Pin Factory podcast. If you like what you've heard, then please do subscribe to us on your chosen podcast provider and give us a, a like and a rating as well if you enjoy what you've heard and until next week we will see you then thank you very much for listening 